Welcome to Flip the Script, your go-to podcast about health disparities. My name is Max. My guest today is Dr. Ben Howell. He's a National Clinical Scholars Fellow here at Yale School of Medicine, as well as a primary care physician. He's already been a guest here before, but I'll let him tell us a little bit about himself. Uh, yeah, thank you, Max, for having me back on uh, Flip the Script. Uh, as you said, I am a uh, National Clinician Scholar Program Fellow, a Health Services Research uh, Fellowship here at Yale University, Yale School of Medicine. I'm also a general internist, primary care doctor at the VA hospital, where I primarily see uh, veterans who are experiencing homelessness. Right. And so, Dr. Howell, the last time we met, we talked a little bit about the state of um, just addiction care in prison settings uh, in the U.S. in general. Um, And since then, I recently learned that the Connecticut um, government, so the governor signed into law um, approval or or mandating of um, addiction treatment or opioid use disorder treatment in Connecticut prisons, Mm -hmm. making it the third state uh, in the U.S. to to do that. And my understanding and recollection is that you were pretty involved with that process. Yeah, I, I tried to be. I mean, I think the as as we talked about last time, my research focus is mostly around the impact of incarceration on health outcomes, both sort of the experience of incarceration, but also policies that impact people's experience while they're incarcerated. Um, and as we discussed last time, being incarcerated in and of itself is has a risk of mortality. That you're released from prison or jail, and your risk of dying is very high. Uh, especially in the last sort of 10, 20 years, a lot of that is driven by overdose, in particular opiate overdose. And that is partic- particularly driven by the fact that historically we don't offer treatment uh, for opiate use disorder or opiate addiction in our prisons and jails. I mean, I think some people might disagree with that statement, but in the sense that we don't provide the best gold standard evidence-based treatment, which is uh, methadone and uh, or buprenorphine, sometimes known as suboxone. Uh, and naltrexone is the other one uh, that we sometimes uh, use. Um, uh, so yeah, the, this past, uh, the in Connecticut we have a general assembly and they meet uh, for, I forget, I think six months a year. Uh, and during this session in the general assembly I worked with some folks uh, and I'd love to talk about that team and that collaboration uh, to try to get to change that. And the, the goal was to, to make it in Connecticut state prisons and jails uh, that everyone who would be screened for opiate use disorder, number one, but then also once screened uh, positive, would be offered the, the best treatment. It wasn't mandated treatment. Like It's not like you come in, you have opiate use disorder, you automatically would be put on methadone, but you at least be offered uh, the gold standard community standard. Um, and that was partly because other states have already done this. Um, and as you mentioned, Connecticut is now the third, but Connecticut, uh, Rhode Island, our neighboring state, has been doing this in 2016 mm-hmm. and already showing impressive outcomes. And the one that the first, the biggest outcome, and I think arguably to me the most important, was that they showed a decrease in mortality. People were being released from their prisons and jails and they were dying less often. So that Rhode Island being the sort of pioneer uh, on a statewide level, uh, makes and showing good data that people were 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 not dying. Uh, it made it sort of little reason that other states shouldn't follow their example, and that was the main reason that I I worked with some other folks uh, to try to get that changed here in Connecticut. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I understand that probably wasn't an easy process, just based on how 
these sort of bills have gone in different states. I saw that the uh, a similar bill passed the New York State Senate but failed to clear the assembly. So I'm just curious what were some of the I guess obstacles that you and your team and if you don't mind sharing who all um, you know. Yeah, no, I mean I would I would say that I I will take some credit for mm -hmm. moving this forward, but it obviously took a lot of work of a lot of people uh, to make it happen. Uh, and most importantly, I think, frankly, is that the governor, Governor Lamont, who's, who just started as this past year as our governor, he had made it part of his platform uh, when he was running for governor. Uh, and that was great because that made we as our team just had to help hold him accountable to making that, that happen. Uh, but even that said, it, it is difficult. Um, the I had been trying to do this for a couple years, recognizing that I, as a as a physician scientist, as a uh, sort of physician citizen uh, of the world, appreciating that like we can't just live in the school in our university bubble and create data and say like this is the best thing. We really have to be as physicians, as scientists, sort of pushing outside of that bubble uh, to get to communicate that information. Uh, and that is something that I to hold as a value, uh, and that informed, given that that was my research, I really needed to push myself to be informing policymakers uh, what the best data was and what we should be doing and what other states uh, were doing. And taking that first principle, I then uh, sort of just sort of contacted people who were in similarly interested. Uh, and once you start sort of being out there saying, like, I'm the person who is interested in this, uh, you suddenly, people kind of come out of the woodwork who are also interested and don't have this energy and an interest to change what they see as a, a system that's not working very well, um, but don't know how to act upon that interest. Um, the most important, honestly, the most important collaborators I had were two law students uh, at the Yale Law School, a guy named Patrick Holland and another guy named Sam Marullo. Uh, and they similarly were like, we, we've identified that Rhode Island's doing this, we're interested in sort of getting involved in changing policy. Um, but they had their, they had the sort of legal expertise around how the policy gets changed, how policy is made, and they really needed expert uh, sort of advice from public health and physician uh, professionals, uh, where me and sort of finding other people, a lot, lot of trainees who are very uh, activated and motivated, but then also a lot of professors and, and other practicing physicians who were interested in making this happen. So really I think that was the big thing is just sort of getting your voice out there and saying, this is something that I think is important just talking to a lot of people and then doing that networking to finding other people who are interested in, in, in sort of putting some effort towards this. Um, and then a lot of people don't know sort of how to, to focus that energy once they sort of identified that. And then sort of just finding collaborators to say like, how do we do this? What are the process? What's the sequence of things? When do we push where? Who do we need to talk to? Uh, and that was a, very much a learning process over the last several years on how to do that. It's a little different state to state. Um, but it, it, in general, it's pretty similar. There's a sequence of events that a, a bill will go through, um, and you just have to identify the people who are the, the movers and shakers who are potentially going to bring up the bill, when to go testify, go drive up to Hartford in the capital here in Connecticut to go testify in support of the bill, to go talk to more legislators, get other people to come talk and support, and really just keep pushing uh, people to, to do it. That said, it's not... Um, it's not like a given. I feel like there's some naivete that like me as a physician who knows the evidence that this is going to save lives, that's going to be sufficient. I'm just going to go up there and say like, this will save lives and that will be enough for them to be like, oh, we didn't know that. Of course we're going to do this. <laughs> um, but it doesn't, it doesn't happen that way. Uh, and part of it, 
So, I mean, I think your, your question was like, who are the people pushing against this and how do you navigate that process? I think something I've appreciated is that we, uh, or me as a physician, a public health professional and scientist, I have a certain sort of set of values and ethics of what I think are important and sort of improving people's health, improving life expectancy, that has primacy to me, like as the most important thing. But in the public sphere, you will be put in a place where there's people who have other interests in mind uh, and how to navigate sort of those different values um, to either ideally come around so different people with different values can come to agreement to, to push something forward, but also identifying people who have value systems that for whatever reason are, are against yours and how to politically navigate, uh, strategically navigate around those. I think the biggest one uh, in politics is, for better or for worse, how to pay for things. Um, the state in Connecticut, our state budget uh, is not not great. Uh, we have been in the red for several years. Um, so anyone who's going to the, the state, even if you believe in your heart of hearts that number one, it'll save lives, uh, likely will save money in the long run, uh, that's still going to be a fight for the sort of fiscal conservatives out there to be like, how are we going to increase spending uh, when we're, we're really trying to cut taxes, lower due spending? So those are going to be that. That's going to be a different. Uh, that's going to be someone who, whoever you're, whatever you're putting up a bill to increase spending, that's going to be an entrenched sort of group. Uh, and the other one, just sort of, there's a lot of inertia. Um, inertia both when things start moving to, to actually change things, but frankly inertia to get things, to prevent from get things moving, to just keep things the, the same. And I think in corrections, in prisons and jails, that inertia is even more impressive. Like the, we have these prisons and jails, this sort of, uh, sort of black box, you know, bureaucratic carceral system uh, that doesn't like to change. They've been doing the things the way they've been doing it for a while. Uh, it takes a lot of effort to change things, and they're better off just saying, like, we're doing things fine. Don't, we'll just keep our black box, let us do our thing, don't try to come in here and tell us how to, how to, how to do things. So I think that institutional inertia uh, is honestly one of the biggest things to be just like, we can, we can change. Like, things can change. They don't have to stay the same. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that can be very difficult. And honestly, the, the other biggest one, which is people who don't, who have a different point of view around people who are incarcerated, uh, for better or for worse. The, there's, there's a lot of uh, language in our country around othering of people who are incarcerated that they're, they're not you or me. They're just these other people who are these bad people that they deserve punishment and they don't deserve you know, all the rights and, and, and other things that people, that I think all people deserve, especially the right to, to maximizing their health. Uh, so that stigma and discrimination around people who are incarcerated, those very, very entrenched viewpoints about what the role of the criminal justice system is, um, is honestly one of the biggest ones where people just don't understand that like offering people prison jails is, is a, is a, will save lives, will save money, and, and frankly, it's just the right thing uh, mm-hmm. to do. So it's, that's a very long-winded way to say that there's finding this a policy that you want to change. One of the most important things, I think, is mapping out the world of other people who are going to be either for you or against you, and really trying to figure out why or what's the main motivator for them. Uh, and that can be very personal reasons like my son, my daughter, my, my, my brother, or just sort of vague sort of principled reasons about like the budget and sort of not changing structural uh, inertia. So it's interesting you mentioned the uh, othering of people who are in jail and in prisons. And that makes me think that, you know, the Eighth, Amend- the Eighth Amendment yeah. um, 
sort of requires that people who are incarcerated receive um, sort of appropriate health care. And so then this delineation between like treatment for opioid use disorder and then the rest of health care probably has something to do with that or yeah no i mean i think so you're right the the supreme court um i forget in the 70s uh or 80s i forget the exact year uh decided that the eighth amendment which uh forbids cruel and unusual punishment decided that not providing uh adequate health care would meet that criteria of being cruel and unusual punishment that said the supreme court did not explicitly say what adequate health care mm-hmm. should be uh and not surprisingly state to state uh, county to county that is interpreted uh, in, in different ways. Uh, but you're right, but it's also true outside of prisons and jails, their addiction medicine is oftentimes cordoned off uh, in a way that it's okay that you will go to one place for most of your, your health care, uh, but then you have to go to a different place, uh, oftentimes in a less ideal neighborhood, oftentimes less a pretty building uh, where you would go get your addiction, addiction care. I mean, methadone clinics being the, the most classic Example of that, so that othering exists, and then people, a lot of people, are really trying to fight against that stigma and discrimination that impacts sort of the perception of addiction medicine in the whole of our society. But clearly, putting that that stigma on top of the othering of people who are in prisons and jails, putting those two together is a makes it even heavier, a heavier mm-hmm. lift. So now that this law has been passed, um, and as we know, people who have a history of incarceration, once they're released from prisons, they have a much higher um, sort of likelihood of dying within those first two years of like a composite of chronic diseases. Do you foresee that uh, preemptively treating um, addiction while they're incarcerated would potentially curtail some of of those um, uh, I do. I 100% do. I think I have a. I think I can stand on pretty good evidence that it will decrease the risk of dying. Uh, mm-hmm. The people who have a uh, opioid use disorder that effectively in most settings was untreated in, in prisons and jails. I think the one study said it was like a hundred times the risk of a overdose uh, mm-hmm. in the first two weeks after release from jail. Offering we know offering treatment specifically offering methadone buprenorphine and or uh, naltrexone, those first two being the most efficacious, um, in anybody will decrease the, the risk of dying, the risk of relapse and the risk of overdose, and then subsequently the risk of dying. So I, there's no reason to think that this population will be any different than other populations in that right. case. And that Rhode Island is already showing us that that is in fact the case, that they're, I think they showed it was de- uh, a 50% decrease in the mortality uh, in the first year that they had done uh, the program. So I fully expect, uh, and I think that Rhode Island data will just be recreated in other places that the risk of dying uh, will will go down. Um, the other outcomes, I honestly think it, it should, I have a, a firm believer that um, providing health care, uh, especially for this, the population of people being released from prison and jail, that is such a destabilizing experience. So if you're in this highly structured place where you have limited rights, and they're kind of released back into the community. Uh, you have some rights, but you don't have all your rights back. You have to report to a parole officer. You have to get housing. You have to get employment. Sometimes you have to get drug tested, Not let alone sort of like reconnecting with your family, avoiding some of the things that you were potentially put you in prison and jail in the first place. So it's a very highly destabilizing experience. I'm a firm believer that healthcare, especially in that, in that destabilizing time, 
if ideally administered, can be a stabilizing uh, force. So just a place where they can check in, a place where other health issues can come up. Um, I think it can be a stabilizing effect to increase the likelihood that someone will potentially get employment and keep that employment, potentially have housing and keep that housing, hopefully re- rebuild relationships. And I do think healthcare, and, and especially for people who have addiction, uh, adequately treating that addiction can be that foundation so people will have better outcome, uh, outcomes outside of their health. So housing, employment, re- sort of reconnecting with uh, family and, and contributing to society. I, I, I mean, I, that is something that's more of a value statement uh, than something that I can say based on data, uh, but I firmly believe uh, that to be true. Mm-hmm. So then upon release, some individuals would potentially go to residential programs. Um, and something that I thought of, and it just, that just came across this when... Um, uh, after this publication of an article from the Gothamist about issues of um, um, disbursement of opioid use treatment yeah. medication at Rikers Island, is that uh, there are some um, residential programs that won't accept uh, people who are on treatment for opioid use disorder. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the sort of balance yeah, yeah. between like the existing programs that tend to sure. accept people who were recently incarcerated yeah. and released and then many of whom potentially have a history yeah. of opioid use disorder may not be on treatment, um, now will be more likely to be on yeah. treatment, like what that balance between like stable housing versus... For sure. Um, I mean, I think you're getting at a couple issues around both people who are involved in the criminal justice system as well as people who have opioid use disorder. The, around the criminal justice system, as I said, one, most people, when they're released from prison and jail, and I think it's the majority of people in the, in the U.S., don't sort of go back to sort of having their full rights returned to them, mm-hmm. oftentimes are still under criminal supervision, or sort of criminal justice supervision, and that's either parole or probation. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the, the latest stats, and I think this is also fascinating, another very, I think, a hidden population in our country, we incarcerate around 2 million people, but there's another 5 million people who are living in the community but under criminal supervision of some variety. And that can mean a broad range of things, but in basic uh, terms, it means that they're, they don't have the full freedoms uh, that they would have otherwise. Oftentimes, it means that there's requirements about housing, requirement about employment, and oftentimes checking in with a parole probation officer. Oftentimes, there's limitations on who you can interact with. Um, like, you can't interact with anyone else who has a felony conviction, which in some communities is a ridiculous uh, thing to put on someone. It means they are probably not interacting with anybody, uh, for better or for worse. Um, but so it just means that those rights are constrained, and it means people like parole officers, probation officers, and judges uh, and the state can limit uh, your rights. And for us as physicians, I think the most important way is those decisions on what they limit and what they allow are not always based on the best science around, around medicine. So there will, there will be situations where judges uh, or parole officers will say, I don't care if you're on methadone, my, my rule for you, and it's entirely arbitrary, uh, person to person, is that you can't be on methadone. You can't be on Suboxone. Just that's your parole conditions are such that we're not going to let you do this. Um, and I do think that that is a real something where I get really activated, where judges and parole officers are making medical, technically medical decisions, mm-hmm. uh, not based on the best evidence. 
And that's something where I think we, as a public health and medical community, really need to push back and say, like, I'm not going to tell you how to be a judge. I'm not going to tell you how to be a police officer, a parole officer. Uh, don't tell us how to sort of manage medicine and sort of get the best outcomes. Let's work together. I'll stay in sort of my uh, area of sort of telling you what the best evidence to, to reduce relapse and reduce overdose. Uh, you sort of do your criminal justice thing uh, and don't make medical decisions. And I think that happens too often that we allow criminal justice different actors in the criminal justice system to curtail people's rights to access the best evidence of care. Where that gets into the housing thing is that um, similarly, halfway houses, sober homes, places like that will oftentimes have their own arbitrary rules about who they will allow to live there and who they won't. Um, I think it probably makes sense that they don't allow illegal activities like active use of drug, although I think they're um, there's places where I think I could push back against that in sort of a harm reduction frame. But I'll, putting that aside, they oftentimes limit the usage of fully legal, appropriate medications for addiction. And I think that's exactly the case uh, that you're bringing up. A gentleman was uh, in Rikers, was started on methadone uh, in Rikers Island. And within conversation with the doctor, they decided that that was the best thing for him to treat his severe opioid use disorder. And then a judge told him the condition of his release is they would have to live in a halfway house. And the rules of that halfway house were that you can't be on methadone. Um, and so given that option, and I think this is how the story played out, the gentleman said, I, in conversation with my doctor, I know that if I don't, I'm not on methadone, my risk of relapse is very high. My risk of dying and sort of overdosing if I relapse is also high. I will not... I will not, I'm not going to accept those conditions of release and effectively stayed in jail at Rikers, I don't know how long, but for a while, um, to stay on methadone as opposed to being released and putting in a halfway house where, he, where his recovery would be put at risk. So is that overlap of arbitrary, non-evidence-based decisions, or not healthcare evidence-based decisions um, in halfway houses and places like that, but also that judges and parole officers are making as well. And I think that's the place where physicians and public health professionals really should push back and say like, no, this this is the appropriate treatment, this is the appropriate indication. We shouldn't be limiting uh, access and people's rights for access to the best best treatment in those settings. And I think that's really what was at play in that situation. So I think in different settings, uh, I've heard of this in like pediatrics uh, clinics or like at the VA uh, where you have sort of medical legal partnerships yep. where someone working in collaboration with the clinicians would like advocate um, on behalf of the patient from from that legal yeah. perspective. So I wonder whether this is the next frontier of addressing matters of, um, um, you know, that intersection between like incarceration and opioid use disorder slash addiction where yeah. like um, there needs to be a robust structure of like legally informed be it physicians, advocates, whoever else, who can uh, yeah. ultimately make changes to the, um, you know, the, the sort of like rules that are put in place both by judges, parole officers, but also uh, institutions like halfway yeah. houses and such. I 100% agree that this is a place where, much like my story about doing some advocacy around getting bills changed, 
I have an expertise. It's around the science of addiction treatment, the sort of epidemiology around incarceration and the health outcomes related to that, and expertise as a physician. But I don't have expertise around the process of how a bill becomes a law, uh, that sort of thing. And collaborating with law students and lawyers in that case was very powerful to sort of their knowledge of the, the process. Uh, the evidence and sort of pertinent stories that I can bring as a health professional, that collaboration is huge. I think in this setting that you're describing is another place where, again, like me as a physician, I wouldn't know where to begin to sort of right that wrong. I know it's wrong. I know that I have knowledge that it shouldn't, people should stay on treatment, but I wouldn't know the first thing about how to start that process and change those conditions. And that's where sort of collaborating with other people, in this case, oftentimes lawyers, whether it be housing, uh, housing law experts or experts in like public defenders or in um, experts on rules of parole and probation, that's where those collaborations can be extremely powerful. Uh, physicians can bring their, their knowledge and evidence and science around health uh, and healthcare provision and medicine, and then to collaborate with people who know the system and where to, to, ex- to use that knowledge to actually change the conditions. Um, I think from having done this work a little bit, oftentimes it's sort of claims around the uh, Americans with Disabilities Act or the ADA uh, that addiction is counts as a, a disability where you can't inf- infringe people's rights around access to appropriate um, sort of treatment for that, that disability. So that's one place where lawyers have been using that law on the books already saying like, this is an ADA violation, that's federal law, um, you can't discriminate based on someone having an addiction uh, based on the, for arbitrary reasons, you have to allow that. Uh, but that's where like, I wouldn't know that, like I don't have like a, a law degree, but collaborating with people in example of medical legal partnerships, where I think the two examples that you brought up were in, in pedi- here in Yale and the pediatric clinic and the VA, where their lawyers are very versed in the issues that are specific to those, uh, those patient populations um, can be very powerful to sort of get things to, to change. I think the idea of having, um, and also the one example of a medical legal partnership, which is very germane, is that here at Yale, at the Transitions Clinic, the clinic specifically for men and women being released from prison and jail, uh, run by Emily Wong and Lisa Puglisi, they also have a medical legal partnership. Right, that's right. Um, but it makes perfect sense that that population is going to have and they, honestly, I think sometimes it was, it was knowledge to me, they don't really focus on the criminal law side. It's really the civil legal needs, like the issues around getting an ID and sort of certificates and getting housing and sort of uh, um, lease complaints and rent uh, complaints and sort of some things like that. There's a place where those type of, of partnerships can be very powerful. Mm-hmm. So um, thinking about this new law uh, and the many ramifications, you know, around like, you know what it means for housing when people get released um, and it just and also obviously health yeah. in general um, you know from your vantage point as a physician here in Connecticut um, what does this new law and including it put at the potential shortcomings uh, mean for especially the minority populations in the state right sure. Connecticut ha- Connecticut has some of the worst um, both like income disparities sure. and some health disparities in the country um, I think for me this is another sort of learning process for me you so as you said the governor signed a budget uh, a couple months ago that included funding for uh, expanding treatment for addiction for opioid use disorder in prisons and jails I think one part of me is like 
great, we got a win, I'm done, I can go back to doing uh, everything else uh, I do. But that's not the case. Like it requires, I, someone asked me this recently, like what's the next step? And honestly the next step, the first next step for me is just holding the state accountable. Saying like, we have a law in the books now, saying are you doing it? Are you taking the real concrete steps to expand uh, treatment? How many people, which jails, which prisons, are you really sort of meeting the goals that it needs uh, to happen? And I think that's something that's going to require uh, constant vigilance of, because again, it can be another po population that kind of just disappears from our, because our, our, we don't see the population who's incarcerated uh, on a daily basis. It can be, again, I don't want it to become a problem that just disappears, like, oh, we fix it, we don't have to think about it anymore. So I think there's going to be some vigilance just to make sure that the state is following through uh, on this commitment. I think the next step, and this is a problem in a lot of states, but Connecticut included, where addiction treatment in the community is still very um, insufficient. Uh, there are oftentimes in the large, larger cities there is uh, access to, to methadone, um, but there's still, I would say, not sufficient access even in the cities to, to methadone uh, spots. Um, but especially in rural locations outside of big cities, accessing methadone can be very difficult. Um, similarly with uh, buprenorphine or Shaboxone, uh, I think we can do a lot to ramp up access um, in our cities and in our, our rural locations um, to make sure that people, I mean for everybody who has addiction and they're getting started on these medications, but especially for this population transitioning out of prison and jail, that they have somewhere to go, that they have someone who will will continue their, their methadone, will continue their suboxone once they're, once they're released. Um, because I, I, they wouldn't, it would be, it would probably be better for their health if they had to, if they continued it, but unfortunately I don't want, I don't want to be a situation where someone is released and then constrained to like, oh, you have to live in Bridgeport because that's the only way we could get you into a, a provider, but his family or whatever is in another part of the state. Just making sure that we have that access. I do think it does. I mean, like many health things, that over those those questions of access uh, overlap with you know structural barriers of, of overlaid over many many generations of institutional racism, structural racism, so that communities of color, um, for better or for worse, oftentimes have access to methadone because of where we put methadone clinics, um, but might not have access to to suboxone and sort of providers who provide suboxone. So I think that'll be just I, we. Constant vigilance, I guess, is my is my big, big take on being aware of keeping the state accountable for increasing treatment, keeping providers in the community uh, accountable for expanding treatment, um, and being making sure that expansion of treatment is not done in a disparate way to reinforce uh, historical uh, structural barriers. So, constant vigilance, which is not is a not I don't have a specific remedy, but just always got to keep pushing. Constant vigilance. Yeah. Uh, that will be my take-home point. Thank you so much yeah. for your time and, and thanks for your advocacy. No problem. Thanks everyone for listening and stay tuned for the next episode of Flip the Script. <laughs>